Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, that you would illumine our minds, that you would give us understanding, you would help us to see this great picture of the work of your spirit through the preaching of the gospel in the church in Acts, help us see this beginning of a fulfillment of new covenant promises being carried out here and and Father, that you would work in such a way in our own congregation that, that we would see those promises being fulfilled by your Spirit in us in powerful ways as well. Father, we recognize that you say great grace was upon them all in the church. We pray that great grace would be upon us all as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a text like the one we're looking at today is interesting because um, it, it's, it's sort of one of these remarkable texts as we read a description of the early church. We read the description, and the description of the early church is, is nearly idyllic, isn't it? It's as if the early church was almost without sin. As you read this text, they, they love in the ways that we would hope to love. Um, and we generally have two reactions to this, te- this kind of text. If you're anything like me, you have one of two reactions. One reaction is, yes, this is so good, this is exactly how the church should look. The other reaction that we often have is, is to follow up with that, how do we make this happen in our church? Right? This is so good, this is how the church should look, so how do we make this happen in our church? How do I make this happen in my life? We see the setup for this text really in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, so look there As we see the description of the early church just after the preaching at Pentecost, I've told you guys that after the preaching at Pentecost, people repent and believe as the Holy Spirit works in them, and then you see um, this description of them that begins to be teased out through the chapters of Acts. So we read this in verse 42 of chapter 2, and they devoted themselves, that's all these people who had come to faith in Christ, more than 3,000 people, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the doctrine the exposition of the Old Testament in light of the fulfillment of the coming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles' doctrine is. And the fellowship, that's the church body, not just to hanging out together, but they were actually committed to the fellowship. It's a noun, the body of Christ. They're committed to that, the fellowship. And they were committed to the breaking of, the, of bread, which seems to indicate um, likely the, the, the ordinances the Lord's Supper, we'll see baptism earlier in that passage and later on, and the prayers. Those are actually regular corporate prayers. They met twice a day for corporate prayer, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., um, just, just so you know. We, once a month, 4 p.m., the last Sunday of the month. Our bar is really low, right? So uh, we always joke that we, we try to live the glorious life of low expectations. When you set the bar really low for your friends, they're always leaping over it, and you're always deeply satisfied with them. When you set it high, they're never clearing it, and you're always angry and bitter. So we set it low. Once a month, 4 p.m. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So all right. You should set the bar low for your friends, though. It's helpful. It does, you're not nearly as, as angry all the time. All right. And the prayers. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul... And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, which you'll actually see at the beginning of chapter 3 as they heal 
a lame man there. Wonders and signs would be done through the hands of the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. Now notice that. They're actually together and they're sharing all their stuff. And it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Those verses in verse 44 and 45 are what we then see in more detail in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. We see that in more detail. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were constantly meeting together, devoted to prayer and the doctrine and um, the, the ordinances and the care of one another, love for one another, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we start to see that then, this description played out as the apostles heal. They preach the gospel about Jesus after the healing of the crippled man, saying he's the one who fulfills the Old Testament. And then we see them become persecuted. They come back to the church, and the church is immediately at prayer together. And now we see it played out as not only are they in prayer in the preceding passage, they've just been persecuted, told don't talk about Jesus anymore, and when they get together they reflect on the fact that we need to break out in praise of God because he has predetermined all of these things. He is utterly sovereign over everything. There's not one random molecule in the universe over which he is not sovereign, and he is good, and he cares about us, and he's at work here, and so we don't even want judgment for these folks right now. Lord, just consider the threats against us. And as you consider the threats against us, give us the boldness to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so they might be saved. Give us clarity to speak about Jesus in the face of fear. And so they pray this way, and we're told that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, which if you were here last week, that means that they're, they're filled with the testimony of God's word about Jesus. And then we read this passage, now the full number, chapter 4, verse 32, of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That's a, a teasing out of what you see in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 34 of Acts 4. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. Here's who they were as a church. And we wonder, why does the church not always look this way? Because here's how we see the church looking here. Why doesn't it always look this way? We know that this is a glorious description of the church where the church loves one another. They love the body of Christ well, and it's not just a sentiment or affection, but they love, in that sense, it's a, they love the body well tangibly, actually caring for each other in real ways. It's not just a feeling. They're actually showing care. Now, they're committed to prayer. They're committed to making Christ known. How do we make that happen in our church? That's really the second question, right? How do we make it happen? We know something's amiss in a church where this isn't happening. We know that, don't we? And we wonder, how do we bring it about? How do we bring it about? Some of us wonder, how come I'm not more like this? Those of you who feel guilty all the time, right? You wonder, how come I'm not more like this? Some of us wonder, how come other people aren't more like this? Right? Those of you who struggle less with guilt, and anyway, you, you know who you are. Some of you wonder, how can I make this happen in my heart? Some of you wonder, how can I make this happen in somebody else's heart? We know this is how the body of Christ ought to look because this is precisely what Jesus looks like, isn't it? Committed to the scriptures, committed to prayer, committed to the church, so committed he laid down his life for her. Committed to obedience, to hearing the voice of the Lord. Committed to caring for others at the expense of himself. So shouldn't a church look like him? And the answer is yes, the church should look like Jesus. The body of Christ should reflect the life of its head. But we know this is not often the actual state of things in the church, don't we? As much as we ought to reflect, the, the body ought to reflect the life of its head, as much as that's true, 
We know that it seems that the church often has a glorious head in Christ and a really, really unattractive body in the church. So how do we change it? How do we make this happen in our own hearts and in our local church? How do I and my local church become a people who love God so supremely that it is expressed in our tangible and sacrificial love for our church body and it's expressed in commitment to make Christ known on mission together? How how do we make that happen? This morning I want to take the sermon in two parts to answer that question. The first is I want to dig deeper into this description of the church. That's the first major part, okay? I want to dig deeper into the description of this church. The second thing I want to do is I want to answer that question, how did this happen in them? How does it happen in us? In other words, what's the power behind this church? Because clearly we recognize that there are days when we lack it in our own lives and there are sometimes generations where we lack it in the church. So how do we make this happen? What's the power behind it? So let's look first at the description of the church. And as we look at the description of the church, I really want to take that description in three parts, okay? Three, part, three parts. Their commitment to loving one another, their commitment to the mission of making Christ known, and then really the example of Barnabas would be the three parts, okay? The example, if you will, of the ideal Christian in this passage, okay? So let's look at the church description of the church in three parts. First, the commitment to love one another. Look at Acts 4.32, and we'll just look at the first phrase. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Wow. What does that mean? The full number of those who believed. So we know at Pentecost, roughly 3,000 people are converted. Now, I don't know if it was 2,998 or 3,013. I have no idea. We're given a round number. At least 3,000 were added to their number. There are already 120 in the upper room prior to Pentecost, so we know the church is minimally 3,120 people, right, roughly. And then we know in the next scene in chapter 4, after the apostles preach in in the temple in Solomon's colonnade after the healing of the lame man, that 5,000 people are converted. Now, we don't know if that's 5,000 in addition to the 3,000 or if that's 5,000 when you put the 3,000 with 2,000 more, but there it's just 5,000 men. In other words, that's not including women or children, just 5,000 men. So we know that the church is roughly somewhere, minimally, between five and 20,000 people, most likely. I would say it's toward that upper number in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to stop and conceive of that. Most likely, somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people in the church here. And it says the full, notice that, now the full number of those who believed. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were unified. That's what it's getting after. They had a unity. They looked across the aisle. They didn't have church buildings like we have now, but you understand the point. They looked across the aisle and said, those are my people. They they drove up on Sunday morning, if you will. They didn't have cards either. I know that, okay? But if you will, they drove up on Sunday morning and saw the people walking into the building, even the ones they didn't like, and said, those are my people. That's my family. They weren't ashamed of the body of Christ. They weren't the kind of people who said, I love Jesus, but I, I don't like his bride, the church. They were the kind of people who said, I love Jesus, and because I love Jesus, I love his church. They're my people because they're his people. I'm committed to them in Christ, not because of some sentiment I feel, but because of Christ. I am theirs. They are mine. The bond which I have with them is deeper than that of my biological family. And like my biological family, I don't write them off because of some irritations. Listen, I know some of you, I've been in the counseling room with some of you. Some of your families are really irritating, to say the least, right? 
and you stick with them. You stick with them. But man, another believer in your church ticks you off and you bail and go to another church. You're treating these people like they're disposable commodities. They're there to serve you when they, as long as it fits your life and as long as it serves your ends. I love them. Once they start to irritate me, I'm out. I'm going to go find some other people who make me feel good. We do the same thing, by the way, in all of our relationships outside of generally our blood relatives, and increasingly now in our society, we're doing it to our blood relatives. I'm just done with you because you're hard for me. I just write you off because the primary concern for me is what you do for me. Not, I'm willing, like Jesus, to lay down my life for you, even my enemy. And the, the point of the church of Christ is not, man, I'm so ashamed of what those Christians are doing. You may be ashamed, but man, you better be, not be announcing to the world that those people are not my people. If they are blood-bought, born-again, children of Jesus Christ, they're your people. You treat them like your people. You love them like your people. You're theirs. And they are yours. We're committed to them. And that love to them shows up tangibly, visibly. It's not a sentiment. Our culture, sadly, has redefined love to sentimentality, haven't we? I, so I can love someone and sin against them. I, I love you, honey, but, but I just, I committed adultery. It's not that I don't love you. It's that, I, it's that I love her too. I love you both. No, you don't. I, I, I love this, this man that I'm in a same-sex relationship with. No, you don't. You don't. You don't. You may have a feeling toward that person, but love has an ethical shape or content. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll what? Obey my commandments. And if you love your neighbor, you'll obey his commandments toward your neighbor. You can't say you love your father and mother and not honor them according to the word of, the, of God. You cannot say that you love your neighbor and commit adultery with his wife. You cannot say that you love your neighbor and murder him, Jesus says, even in your heart or with your words. You can't say you love your neighbor and gossip about them. In other words, bear false witness. You can't say that you love your neighbor and covet their stuff. Have raging envy in your heart toward them. Love has an ethical shape. You can't say you love your neighbor and take their stuff from them. You can't say you love your boss and then steal his time by messing around at work when he's paying for that time. That's theft. You know that, right? You don't show up to work at on time and he's paying you for that time. You leave early and he's paying. You play around on the computer and he's paying you for that time. You're committing theft. You can't say you love people and violate God's commandments with regard to them because love has an ethical shape. It doesn't, you, we love this language. I fell in love with this person. I fell out of love with this person. Listen, you fall in a ditch. You don't fall in love. It's not this involuntary thing that happens to you. You choose to love people. In other words, you choose to keep God's commands with regard to them, to sacrifice yourself for their sake. If love is a sentiment, then you can fall in and out of it, can't you? But if love is a tangible commitment to prefer others before yourself, then you don't fall into it or out of it. And that's how Jesus talks about love. If you love me, you will what? you'll feel really warm inside. No. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love has an ethical shape or content. It's normed. It's directed by or ruled by God's commandments. If I love my neighbors, I, I don't do them wrong. Further, if I love my neighbors, if I'm like Jesus, then I lay down my life for them. That means that I'm often greatly inconvenienced for their sake. 
Look how their love was tangibly expressed. It wasn't just a feeling. It wasn't even predominantly a feeling. It was a tan- there was a tangible expression. Chapter 4, verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said, any, said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. In other words, um, it's, it's a little bit like your family. If I think about my own household, I, I, I have a house, we have a couple of cars, we have stuff in our house, we have money in our bank accounts, and frankly, um, I, my wife and my children and I, we basically recognize this is our stuff, right? I don't say to my kids, this is my money, you, you got to earn your own if you want to eat dinner, okay? Look it, I'm being gracious to you by buying you some food. I don't say that to them, right? It's our money. We're a family. This, this belongs to us. This is our house. These are our cars. You guys do that with your families, right? I hope. I hope you do. If you're actually holding over your family members the purchase of basic necessities, you're sick. You need to go to Jason. Go see Jason, get some prayer. We'll help you with that, all right? The Lord gives grace to us all. So, we'll, you know, there's grace available for you too. But the point is, we all know that we treat our families this way. And here's, here's what I want to drive at. The church is the family of God. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This bond is eternal. Your blood bond is temporal. The bond we have in Christ is the bond of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just give us some stuff called grace. He he actually seals us, the Holy Spirit, with himself, uniting us to Christ. And we're united to Christ together. We're a family. That means the way the early church saw this, and I think rightly, this means my house is your house and my cars are your cars. My bank account is your bank account. It's meager, so you don't be excited. But the point is, is that you, this is our stuff. This isn't communism, folks. This is not the early church going to the instrument of government to force the redistribution of wealth. This is the early church knowing that they belong to Christ and therefore one another, and so sharing everything they have because when they see a brother and sister in need, they think, that's my brother or sister. I want to help them. This is a voluntary, charitable, sacrificial kind of giving. I know some of my brothers in need, and so I want to donate some of what I have to the cause of helping this. That helping them. And what's interesting is in this case, they actually give their, they lay their, their gifts to the apostles' feet. Look at verse 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The point here is the body was committed to loving one another. And, and the question is, Sovereign Grace, are we committed to love one another this way? We committed to love one another this way. Do we see others around us in our body as our people? Our family. Even the people you don't care much for. That's why you have to bear with one another in love in Ephesians 4. Right? What does he say? Bear with one another in love. You know, that's not like particularly complimentary if you tell somebody, I'm bearing with you in love, right? I'm enduring you because of my love for you, right? It's not something you announce on the anniversary. For these 25 years, I've endured you in love, right? It's just, it's just not, not that kind of thing, right? But we're told to bear with one another in love. What does that mean? That means it's going to be difficult sometimes. That's the assumption behind that. Do we bear with one another love? Do we think everything I have belongs to my family and they're my family, so when I see them in need, I want to help them? Or do we think, this is my stuff. This is my house. These are my cars. This is my bank account. 
Further, when there are relational disputes among us, do we respond like Paul commands the church in Philippi to respond? Look how he commands them to respond in the midst of a relational dispute. There are relational disputes, I'm sure, among you. Whether it's with another Christian in this body, there's probably a relational dispute with you with another Christian in some other local body. Look at Philippians chapter 2. See how Paul commands us to respond in the face of a relational dispute. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Notice they were of one mind and heart, one purpose and heart. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Now notice this, what do you do in a relational conflict? In humility, count others more significant than yourself. That means I can even lay down my right to win this argument. I can even lay down my reputation knowing that I may go to them considering them more important than myself, humiliate myself by admitting wrongdoing even when I think the majority of wrongdoing is on their part, ask for forgiveness, and have them look at me and say to me after I do it, I told you that you were the problem. Not, oh, you're right, oh, I'm so moved by your godliness, I repent too. That doesn't always happen, you know that? Sometimes you just humility, in humility, lay yourself down, consider them more important than yourself, and then they might point the finger at you and say, you are the problem, you're right, I'm glad you finally recognized it. And as a Christian, you take it. You consider others more important than yourself. Let each of you, verse 4, look not, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he launches into the example of Christ. Who, though God laid down his life, humiliated himself by becoming a man. You understand that. I think sometimes we don't realize the incarnation of Christ is the beginning of his humiliation. It is, we think, oh, he was humiliated on the cross. He's humiliated when he was whipped. He was humiliated when he was mocked by people. Listen, he's God. He was humiliated when he was conceived as a man. That was the beginning of his humiliation. And it continued throughout his whole life until his resurrection and exaltation. But he did that for you. And now, because you're united to him by the Spirit, you have the same mind he has. You can now lay down your life for the sake of others. As Paul goes on to say that, that's the mind of Christ. He preferred others over himself. He even preferred his enemies over himself. Do we love one another this way? Do we love one another this way? Second, the text describes the church as not only committed to one another, but notice what it says in Acts 4, they're committed to mission. Look at Acts chapter 4, again in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In other words, what we see over and over again in these contexts is them giving testimony, bearing witness, proclaiming the gospel. They are focused on the mission of making Jesus known. They want to love one another in the church well, and they want to proclaim Jesus to those who don't know him. Very simple, constant, continual commitment you see. The apostles were preaching Christ with great power. And listen, you have to understand the context. The church had been asking for the apostles to be preaching Christ with great power. So you might say, well, you say the church was committed to the mission, but all we see here is the apostles are preaching. But look back at verse 29 of chapter 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. This is the church together, lifting one voice together to God. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. This is the church praying. With all boldness, right, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Yes, 
the apostles were the primary emissaries as the preachers of the gospel, clearly. But just because they were the primary preachers of the gospel does not mean that the church as a body was any less committed to the mission of making Christ known. They're committed in that they're praying together, they're loving one another, they're supporting the work of the apostles, and later in Acts we'll see that as they're spread out in a diaspora that happens to them, they begin to open their mouths about the gospel as well. Acts chapter 8 and following. They prayed for boldness to proclaim Christ. They gathered to ask the Lord for clarity in the face of fear and for the Lord to bless their proclamation for the salvation of many. So they were a church who loved one another and a church who were committed to mission. And the question is, are we committed to mission? Are we committed to the mission of making Christ known where he's not? Do we see those who do not know Christ as lost? That's an important question. Do you see those who do not know Christ as lost? Do you see them as sinners who are condemned by God for their sin? Do you feel the weight of their condemnation? Knowing as you see them that there but by the grace of God go I. Do we engage in prayer for their salvation? For boldness to speak the gospel with clarity in the face of fear. This is one of the focuses of our corporate prayer every month. We come together to pray for this as a church. We want the Lord to cause us to be bold in proclamation, to be committed to the mission of making him known, to see others come to faith in Christ. But for that to happen of us as a church, we have to be committed to the truth of Acts 4 and verse 12. Look there. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you believe that Allah or Buddha or pick your religion, Hinduism can save, if you believe that being a generally good American can save, if you believe that there's some way in which God will just kind of wave his magic wand over people who are semi-decent so that they go to a better place when they die, in other words, if you believe something other than the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, you won't be moved like this church to be on your face praying for God to make you bold in proclamation. You won't be committed to mission. You certainly won't lay your life down for the sake of others knowing Jesus. You won't. You have to be absolutely fundamentally committed to the fact that there is a God. He has created us. He gave us a law. We violated it. We're under his just wrath and condemnation, and that apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ being applied to us through faith by the Spirit, we will be damned forever. So will all my neighbors, all my friends, all my family members, all my children, and every people group on the face of the earth. If we don't believe that, fundamentally that there is salvation in no other name, we will never be moved to prayer and we will never be moved to sacrifice to make Jesus known. But if we do, how can we not pray? How can we not proclaim? How can we not sacrifice to make Jesus known? And you, frankly, folks, once you gather that, you will be willing to sacrifice your comfort and your reputation and possibly your friendships. You have to prefer yourself, I mean prefer others over yourself for that to happen. That's what we ask of these missionaries we send to Radius to be trained, isn't it? And we see the Lord doing them. They've chosen to walk away from nearly every earthly comfort, even sacrificing the comforts of their children so that Jesus might be known and people saved. Listen, you're not going to take your children to a Muslim people group and make Jesus known where they might be killed if you don't believe that eternity is in the balance for those people. You won't. You won't. You're not going to forsake close friendships by opening your mouth about Jesus for fear they might ridicule you or bail on you as a friend. You're not going to do it if you don't believe that eternity is in the balance for them. We need the Spirit to drive that deep into us, don't we?
Are you willing to do that among your coworkers and family and friends and neighbors? Are you willing to lay it all down and make Jesus known? The early church was committed to this at the expense of their lives. They weren't just worried about reputations, were they? They weren't just worried about possible economic sanctions. They were getting beatings. They were getting burned at the stake. They were getting fed to lions. In the case of the early church under Nero, some of these Christians were wrapped in candle wax and put in Nero's garden as torches. Because they were committed to the fact that Jesus alone saves. Third, the example of Barnabas. Look there, verse 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, so he's both a Jew and, in some sense, from the gen- living in the Gentile area, he's, he's a bit of a transitional figure. He ends up going in Gentile missions with Paul, if you remember, but also being with the apostles in Jerusalem for some time. Native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and, bought, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Listen, this is a field that belonged to Barnabas. <clears throat> You'll find in the book of Acts that Barnabas becomes an example of loving the body well. He becomes an example of commitment to his fellow Christians. He becomes an example of mission, being committed to mission. He goes out with Paul, making Jesus known at expense to himself from the church of Antioch, isn't it? It's Paul and Barnabas. You see Barnabas, in it, if you will, committed to both. He's almost set up here like this idyllic example of the Christian, isn't he? He's a wealthy man. He owns land. And that would have been true only of the wealthy in that time. And he could sell some of his land. He was a charitable, giving man who saw people in need, sold some of his land, and gave the proceeds to the apostles to help the poor in the church. He was committed to helping his brothers and sisters in Christ. Later on, we'll see him committed to bring reconciliation between people. We'll see him committed to going on mission with Paul, pastoring the church in Antioch, and then going on mission with Paul to make Christ known where he is not. Though he was rich, He was willing to become poor for the sake of others. In this sense, he's like Jesus, who though eternally rich, became poor for the sake of us. And in this, Barnabas becomes an example. He becomes a picture of what a Christian ought to be, committed to self-sacrificial love for the sake of the brothers, for the sake of the mission. And we'll pick up his story a little bit more next week as we get to, or no, in two weeks, because Ian Hamilton will be here preaching next week. But in two weeks, as we get to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, <clears throat> is this story of Barnabas ties in there. But here's the question that I hope has been begged for you this whole time. As I describe this ideal church, the question that I hope to have begged at the beginning and throughout is, what caused this kind of ideal church to arise? What caused this? How do we become that kind of church? How do I become that kind of Christian? How do we become more like Barnabas? How do we become more like this church? Because see, I hear what you're saying. I know I need to repent and grow and change. So how do I do it? How? What, what causes this? And that leads us to the second major section, which I only have one point on, which is the power behind the church. What is the power behind this church, behind, if you will, the life of Barnabas even here. Look at verse 33 again. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 33 again. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What are they doing? They're preaching about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's a summary of the fact that they're taking the Old Testament, saying it's fulfilled the life and death of Jesus who is our Messiah, who rose from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, whoever rules and reigns for us. They are preaching Jesus as the Messiah, the only name who saves. That's what they're doing. And look what it goes on to say. Because it's powerful what it says next. And great grace was upon them all. The apostles were preaching Jesus with great power and great grace was upon them all. What empowered this church? The powerful preaching of Jesus, which is 
about Jesus from the apostles, which is taken by the Holy Spirit and being applied to the hearts of this church, is the power behind it. So that it could be said of them that great grace was upon them all. Perhaps something you didn't notice in this passage is that it's a fulfillment of a prophecy for God's people. Are you aware of that? So, so I want to look at the prophecy. Keep your hand in Acts 4, and I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 15. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. In the old, it's in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's called Deuteronomy because Deutero is the second Namas law, the second telling of the law. It's told, if you know, Moses brings the people out of Egypt, and as he brings the people of Israel out of Egypt, the first generation is prohibited from going into the promised land, ultimately because they're sinners who won't go into the promised land. And so he tells Moses, retells their story to the second generation who will enter the promised land. And in the retelling of the story, he talks about the sabbatical year or the Sabbath year. Look at verse 4. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he's promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. In other words, Israel, people of God, you are my people, I am your God. There is coming a day in the life of Israel in which I will bless you, you'll rule over many nations, and there will be no poor among you, and you will obey my voice, you'll keep my commandments, and there will be no what? Poor among you. Now I want you to hear Acts 4 and verse 34. There was not a needy or poor person among them. There was not a poor needy person among them. Now this isn't the full fulfillment of the promise of Deuteronomy 15 you see in Acts 4, but what you do have is the beginning of fulfillment of Deuteronomy 15, don't you? The beginning of it. You see it pictured in the church. There is no poor among them. Now that's not consummated fully until the return of Christ. The return of Christ will be consummated fully, but here you have the beginning because the age of the Spirit of the new covenant has begun. The age in which the Messiah rules and reigns. And the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit is poured out. And now you begin to see, if you will, the first fruits of resurrection life in the community of the church as there is now no poor among them. But it's waiting for full fulfillment at the return of Christ. Jesus, by his Spirit, has ushered in this day of salvation. And here in Acts 4, we're getting a taste of what's to come in the consummation. If we're not careful... To read this as a gracious work of the Spirit through the preaching of the Word, though, this becomes a devastating turning point for our ministries and our hearts. We don't understand that this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the Word. It can become devastating to our own hearts and our ministry because we can begin to think that we can stoke up this kind of love in our own hearts. We begin to think that we can create this in our own churches. We can forget about our wickedness, our sin, our need for Christ, and we can forget about our natural inability or, and the inability of others to keep God's laws, and we can start to think, if we could just get the right counselor to counsel me or to counsel them, if I could just get the right programs in place in the church, if we could just hold as a group to the right set of principles, if we could just get real discipleship, I don't even know what that means anymore, happening if I could just get the right music program in place where people really experience the power of the Lord, if I could just preach the right series on tithing and generosity, then we can make this happen in our church. I can somehow rig it through behavioral approaches. That's where our hearts can go. I can do that in my own individual life. I can somehow rig it through strict asceticism, denial of pleasures. I can somehow rig it through strict spiritual disciplines, through reading my Bible just a certain number of chapters every morning and saying a particular prayer, through following through a certain number of religious rituals. By the way, all of which is good, reading your Bibles and praying. Don't hear me say, don't do that unless it's authentic. 
that I just hate that word, okay? It's terrible anymore. What is it authentic? It just means to share more information about you than you ought to, to people that you ought not be telling that to. That's what it means. It means to be shameless. In our culture, we need to bring shame back a little bit, right? Sorry, I'm a bumper sticker. Don't put that out there. We need to be ashamed of some things. And anyway, okay, so you know, sin is shameful. We go to Christ to have our shame resolved, right? We don't just share it with everybody. No, that everybody doesn't even know, okay? But we can start to think that if we do those little gimmicks, that we're somehow going to reorient our own lives this way. We know, however, that we really aren't mortifying sin on our own, are we? John Owen has said this, a man may easier see without eyes and speak without a tongue than truly mortify one sin without the Holy Spirit. So what caused this here in Acts 4 where they were mortifying their own sin and selfishness so that they might serve one another and be on mission to make Christ known? What happened is the power of the preached word and prayer was used by the Spirit. Those means of the preached word and prayer were used by the Spirit to apply the gospel to the hearts of believers so that great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. And this is what we ought to expect to see in the new covenant ministry of the Messiah. We're promised this. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. I could point this out in Ezekiel 36 as well, but I just want to look at Jeremiah 31 briefly. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That new covenant is the one that Jesus makes. In fact, Jesus is the new covenant, isn't he? Isaiah 42, Make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts rather than tablets of stone by the Spirit on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. I'm going to change them from the inside out. They're not just going to have a law that's external to them on tablets of stone. My Spirit is going to write them on their, it on their hearts. I'm going to give them new hearts. I'm going to give a new mind to them. Look at we don't often read the whole of the New Covenant promises, but look at Jeremiah 32 and go all the way to verse 36. Jeremiah 32 and verse 36. This continues. You're going to see the language in Acts 4 here. Now therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you to say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Talking about Jerusalem here. Behold, I will gather them, my people, from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath, and in great indignation, I'll bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. Now listen, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That is the fundamental covenantal promise from Genesis 17 all the way through. Uh, they shall be my people, and I'll be their God, and I will give them, now notice this, because you heard this in Acts 4.32, I will give them what? One heart and one way. Is that not what it says in Acts 4.32 that they have? And the full number of believers had one heart and one way or one mind. That they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So they're one heart and one soul. One heart of one way, given by the Spirit because it's a new set of affections, a new mind given to them by the Holy Spirit. If you notice in these passages, this says nothing about anything they do. This is about the work of the Messiah, Jesus, being applied to them by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the Word, received by faith. So who made the church this way in Acts 4? Jesus did by his Spirit, through the proclaiming of the Word. Jesus did, by his Spirit, through the proclamation of the Word. When the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, and this is fulfilled. This loving community of Christ was brought about by the preaching of Christ 
and the effectual working of the Holy Spirit of applying Christ to the people. Their new way, their new heart is the way of the Lord. It's a heart that loves God and thus loves his people and seeks the lost. It's a heart, a way that walks in the word and wants his name known in all the earth. Thus, it is a heart to care for my brothers and sisters in Christ, my people, my own, and it's a heart to join them in mission. Now, I I want you to understand there's an already not yet to this, isn't there? The church is not always walking in great grace like this. Not always walking. I don't mean that believers aren't always saved by the great grace of Christ being applied to them by the Holy Spirit. I mean that the church as a body is not always walking in great grace like this. There's often times where the church has seasons where it's more given over to sin, isn't there? Selfishness turned in on themselves. And I don't mean turning on themselves to love one another well. I mean turning on themselves to manipulate one another to serve them well. That happens. At times the church is walking in sin and needs to be corrected. If you don't believe that, read the rest of the New Testament epistles. Paul's writing whole letters to churches in sin. Nothing like this church we're reading in Acts 4. We can't manufacture this kind of grace being among us. Inasmuch as you are a born-again believer, you're indwelled by the same spirit the earlier church was, and you're being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another by the Lord who is the Spirit. And sovereign grace, I would be remiss today if I did not say to you that I believe we are continually seeing the tangible effects of the grace of God among you. We as pastors talk about this all the time, the elders. We see the evidence of grace in so many ways that you love one another. We see the evidences of grace in the way the Lord is raising up missionaries. We see these evidences of grace in your generosity toward this ministry, toward one another. We see them, the evidence of grace, in you reaching out to other people. We see them in the fact that our prayer meetings are packed out. We see the evidence of grace in your hunger for the word, in your kindness toward and respect for the pastors and elders, in the many ways you minister to one another in this community on your own initiative. But we still have plenty of growth we need. Still have plenty of growth we need. For as a church body, there should be nothing more that we want than for it to be said of our church that great grace was upon them all. Is that what we want to hear? The verdict of God about our church? Great grace was upon them all. We can't manufacture that grace, but we can preach the word and we can pray and the spirit can do the work so let's ask that he would father we ask that your son would be powerfully at work by your spirit to cause in our own hearts increasing transformation into the image of your son Jesus Christ to cause in our church the sense, the clear knowledge because of the work that you're doing in the hearts of the people here that great grace is upon us all. Father, cause us by your Spirit to love one another well, sacrificially, preferring the other over ourselves. Cause us, Father, by your Spirit to be hungry for your Word, to be continually in prayer, to Desire more than anything else, more than our reputation, more than our comfort, more than our own lives, to see Jesus Christ saving sinners. Father, we we pray that you would work powerfully in this church by your Spirit so that we would know that great grace is upon us all so that it could be said of us that great grace is upon us all. We pray this in the name of your Son, our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen.